The following audio is from Steadfast Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Steadfast Church or to partner with us on mission, visit steadfastavl.org. Thank you, Pastor Larry. Good morning, church. I, I heard that from this half. I didn't so much hear from this half. Good morning, church. Hey, there we go. Competition. Uh, good morning. Welcome to Steadfast Church. If you are new around here, and I've met a few of you already this morning, uh, my name is Brian, and I have the privilege of serving as the lead pastor here. Uh, if you are new and you want to be known, uh, there's a connect card in the seat there in front of you. Um, or there's a QR code. Maybe we can get that QR code back up. You can do the little phone picture thing uh, and just uh, grab, snap. That'll take you right to the link where you, there it goes. Uh, you can fill out that online connect card. <clears throat> just name, email address, uh, social, um, date of birth, blood type. <laughs> just kidding. Credit card number would be helpful. No, no, no. Uh, we, we genuinely just want to know who you are and how we can serve you, how we can come alongside you uh, in your journey um, towards Jesus or with Jesus uh, towards glory. So uh, if we can help you, uh, please make yourself known. But uh, if you're just checking it out, kicking the tires, that's fine. You're welcome here. You're welcome here. Um, real quick announcement before we get started. Two things uh, quickly. Um, Pastor Larry, today's his last day on staff. We're going to have him up at the end. He's retiring. Can you believe that? Uh, so, yeah. Now, don't worry, he's staying here. Like, we're not letting him leave, so he's going to continue to be an elder and all that. Yeah, that's right. That's worth celebrating as well. Uh, but anyway, we're going to have him up at the end of the service and, and pray over him and sort of commission him out to uh, whatever's next uh, in terms of uh, how he spends his time, but he'll continue to be uh, here with us. The second thing I want to let you parents know is uh, we have a new system. If you see this little black screen right here, uh, test, look at that. So uh, if you have that little card or the little tag that you're given, uh, if that number comes up and it matches yours, that means go get your kid, all right? So we've had it on this screen, and apparently that's not enough. So now we got bright red. <laughs> I'm only shaming some of you, not all of you, but... Uh, so that'll appear, and uh, hopefully that's enough to grab your attention. It'll be up for a minute or two, and then it'll go away so it doesn't annoy all of us through the whole service. But um, we just want to serve you, and, and if that's a way that reminds you, oh, I need to go get my kid because they're freaking out, then we want to do that, okay? I'm sorry, y'all. I'm in a weird mood this morning. Um, <laughs> if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, Second Samuel chapter 11. Uh, I think I'm joking around a lot because today's going to be heavy. Uh, we're, we're, we're up to the David and Bathsheba part of the story. Uh, and so it's going to be heavy, but I, but I believe it will also be hopeful. Um, if you're new with us, we've been in this series exploring the major episodes in the life of David, who became king of Israel. Um, and it's taken us through First and Second Samuel at a pretty rapid clip. Uh, so as I said last week, I'd encourage you to go back and read it on your own if you're unfamiliar with it. But um, up till now, it's been hard to see the broken in broken and beloved. Because everything in David's life has essentially, in his life, has essentially been a success to success, right? Like he was anointed, he killed Goliath, he's a war hero. I mean, yeah, there was the part where he's hiding from Saul in the cave, but even that turned out for his benefit, now he's king, he's had multiple victories, there's peace on all sides. 
And he's even shown mercy and kindness to his enemy's grandson, Mephibosheth. We saw that last week. David's at the pinnacle of his life and career, if you will. But all of that's going to change today. It's all going to change. Now, how many of you, just by show of hands, remember the significance of the piece of pottery that we have on our slide here? A few of you. Do you remember what it's called, that art form? Kitsugi. That's right, kitsugi. And and, uh, it's a Japanese um, style of pottery in which the broken pots or, or pieces are put back together with lacquer mixed with gold. And the idea is, the philosophy is that rather than discarding the piece, rather than covering up the cracks, that the breakage is part of the story. And it actually makes the piece more valuable because of the way that the gold is infused with it. And that's exactly what the Bible does with David's story. And by the way, that's exactly what Jesus does with our stories. All the imperfections are there but they show the the, the reality of grace and mercy towards us because they're bonded back together with gold. Okay, so with that, uh, we're gonna dive into 2 Samuel 11. We're actually gonna cover chapters 11 and 12, but uh, that's a lot. So rather than read the entire passage like I normally do, let me just pray for us now, uh, and then we'll dive in to chapter 11. You guys excited? You ready to study the word? All right. Amen. Let's do this. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for your kindness and your grace to us. Thank you for the end of school. <laughs> uh, thank you for uh, just the, the, the beautiful summer day that we're enjoying. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as your people uh, under the authority of your word and in the presence of your spirit. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you can do today that you would use my weak, feeble attempt at proclaiming your word um, to do miraculous things in the heart of your people, to soften, to convict, to change, to encourage, to save. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that by the end of this morning, that there would be some who are walking in darkness right now who will be brought into your marvelous light. And I pray that others would be brought to repentance. And I pray that others would, would, would be on that journey towards healing and hope because of the gospel. And so meet us here now in our study. We need you. I need you. And so we pray with confidence in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. All right, let's look at first, sorry, Second Samuel chapter 11, and uh, I'll read the first five verses and we'll dive into it here. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, who knew battle had seasons, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It's important. It happened Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, "Uh, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers, took her. She came to him, he lay with her. She had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. We'll just stop there. 
The first thing I want you to see here, if you're a note taker, uh, is a seed of sin. A seed of sin. Now, from the get-go, when we look at this passage, we know something is off because the text tells us that it's the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, but David's not going. That's a problem. Now, this, this skirmish was probably not to defend the kingdom, but rather to expand the kingdom. But here's the thing. Uh, at this time, leaders did not command from a situation room. Kings took a sword and led their people, their army into battle if they felt like it was a worthy battle to partake in. David is a warrior king who has had victory upon victory upon victory, but he sends Joab to do his work for him. You're gonna see that word send at least seven times from David. It's very important. Now contrast this to um, 1 Samuel 17, the, the David and Goliath story. If you remember, the entire army of Israel is shaking in their you know, proverbial sandals. And, uh, and, and here's Goliath over here challenging someone from the army to come fight him. And David, who basically door dashed some cheese and bread to the front lines, shouldn't even be there. He's the only one who goes into battle. Now as king, he's the he should be leading his people into battle and he's the only one who stays behind. What has happened? What has changed? Maybe there's some pride that's built up in this man. You know how many battles I fought? You know how many victories I've had? This one isn't a big deal. Y'all can take care of it on your own. Maybe there's some lethargy. You know, David's not a young man at this point. I mean, he's probably mid-40s, but he's not, a, he's not a 20-year-old, you know? And he's like, listen, I don't have the energy. I just need a nap. Y'all go. And he's abdicating responsibility. And he's spending too much time on the couch. And how many of you know, a lot of problems start when you spend too much time on the couch. I heard one pastor say it this way. If you don't find a productive pastime, your enemy will provide a destructive one. And so, verse 2, it happened. How many of you have had your entire lives flipped upside down because of that little phrase, it happened? It happened. But it didn't just happen. The text tells us it was late one afternoon and he got up from his couch, which means he'd been on that couch a while. One commentator put it like this. The recumbent king has been in bed an inordinately long amount of time. <laughs> and he's got nothing else to do because he doesn't have a productive pastime. And so he's up on his rooftop taking a stroll. Now, he's in a unique position. Uh, when I was in Israel a few weeks ago, I was in the place where they believe they found the city of David and his palace. And they've now built a gift shop there. But on the roof... <laughs> On the roof, underneath is the, the, the rock remains, but on the roof, you, you have this unique vantage point. This, is what, this would have been the highest point in the city because the only thing up above was the, the place where they would eventually build the temple. And so he's up, has a vantage point. He can see down, down the hillside because Jerusalem is up on a hill. So he can see down the hillside. He can see down into the city. He can see into people's windows and onto their rooftops. And he sees a woman bathing. Now, sometimes you can't help what you see. Some of you, 
you're just minding your business, flipping channels, and you see something, <laughs> or you're scrolling, or whatever, right? You can't help what you see, but you have a choice in the moment, don't you? Every one of us. We can't always help what we see, but we have a choice in the moment. Martin Luther said, you, can stop, you can't stop the birds from flying around your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. There's a choice to be made. And we know that David makes the choice to linger. How do we know that? Well, the text tells us that he considered this woman very beautiful, which means he looked at her long enough to compare her to other women. She's very beautiful. We also know that he inquired about her. He gave himself over to thoughts about her. Who is she? And his servant here, who remains unnamed, you can tell, is sort of trying to keep him from doing what he thinks he's about to do. Because he goes, uh, isn't that Bathsheba? Isn't that the daughter of Eliam? Isn't that the daughter of, or the wife of Uriah? Now, it's highly unusual to mention someone by both their father and their husband. What's this guy doing? He's going, hey, hey, you know these guys. Don't do this. Don't take that next step. And here's why. Eliam and Uriah, the Hittite, were both part of David's mighty men. If you remember, when David was on the run from Saul, he gathered a militia. you right. Remember this? 400 and 600 men. And out of that four to 600 men, he had 37 who were called his mighty men. They were his closest brothers in arms. They were the ones that he, that, that, that led into battle with him. These were his brothers. And this guy says to him, this is the daughter of one of your mighty men, this, the, 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 the wife of one of your other mighty men. Don't do this. But David disregards their counsel. Now, the buildup has been kind of slow. He's taken a nap. He's taken a stroll. He sees her. He thinks about her. He inquires about her. But then look at verse 4. It happens quick. David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And she returned to her home. The action is very fast. And it's evident from the text that David used her. Sent for her, got her, brought her, took what he wanted from her, sent her home. Now look, I've, I've been around church long enough that I have heard and seen pastors and commentators try to lay the blame for this situation on Bathsheba. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't agree with that. And there's a few reasons why, okay? Number one, this woman is bathing in privacy. If you notice, some people say, oh, she was up on the rooftop taking a bath. And the text never says that. It says David was on the rooftop. He has that vantage point to see down into people's private courtyards. The text also tells us that she's purifying herself uh, according to the custom of the scriptures. Uh, it was a monthly ritual for women. I'll leave it at that to purify yourself, okay? She's obeying the Lord. Thirdly, maybe that's second. She's bathing in privacy. She's purifying herself. Um, in this time, you don't say no to the king. She, she's the wife of a soldier. She, does, she, can't, she doesn't have the right to say to the king, no thanks. And lastly, for the rest of the mentions of 
Bathsheba in the scriptures, she is never called an adulteress. Do you know what she's called? The wife of Uriah. What does that tell us? That tells us that David committed a horrendous abuse of power. He abused this woman. And I just, I just want to say, if that is in any way part of your story, I am so sorry. And we want to help you. We want to come alongside you. We want to get you counsel if you haven't already, friendship and healing. But, but here's what you need to know. The seeds of this sinful action were present in David's life long before this took place. There were choices that he made that accrued, okay? So he marries uh, Michael, the, the, the daughter of Saul, okay? But then later on, he, uh, Abigail helps him not make a really bad decision, and he ends up marrying her also. And you're like, well, that's weird. And then it says also he married another woman. And you're like, wait, what? Is that allowed? <laughs> And as you see him have victories in battles, he accrues more women to the point where he has at least eight different wives. And then when he becomes king, he has concubines on top of that. And we're going, this doesn't seem right. And you know what? It isn't. You know why? Because Moses, all the way back in Deuteronomy, wrote this down. When you come into the promised land and when you ask for a king and when you're given a king, do not let your kings multiply wives. Because their heart will be led astray, not by the women, but by their own temptation. So David is willfully disregarding the word of the Lord. And now this woman who is not his wife or his concubine is pregnant and he's got a problem on his hands. Before I move on, here's my question. What seeds of sin might be present in your heart, in your life right now? This is a, this conclusion, this, this, this end that David comes to is the product of a multitude of small, foolish decisions. What are you, what are you giving a pass to right now? What choices are accruing in your life? And you don't necessarily see the fruit of them yet, but it might all come tumbling down very soon for you. What seeds of sin might be present in your heart and in your life? I told you this was heavy, guys. Are we good so far? Okay, let's, let's keep going. Look at verse six. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going, yada, yada, yada. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your own house and wash your feet, which is like, Put your feet up, man. Relax. Have a good time. Enjoy your home and everything in it. And Uriah went out to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king, a bottle of cavafier or something. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your own house? Probably didn't say it quite like that. Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. 
And David said to Uriah, you remain here today and tomorrow I will send you back. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. And the next David invited him and he ate in the presence and drank so that he made him drunk. In the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his own house. He did not go down to his own house. I want you to see here um, the fruit of failure, the fruit of failure. We're going to stop there and I'm going to summarize the rest of chapter 11 for you. So it happened because David chose a couch over combat. And now he's faced with the reality of this multiplication of his bad choices. So the question is, how will the man after God's heart respond? What will his choice be? Because he has another choice to make, right? The right choice begins with confession. Sadly, David chooses concealment. And here's the, here's the problem. When sin is concealed, sin compounds. When we choose to conceal sin, it ends up compounding. And it's going to bear some tragic fruit. So he's got to come up with a plan. Because plan A, which is repentance, isn't even on the table. Okay? So plan B Let me bring you Uriah home on leave, right? Put your feet up, relax, hoping that's going to solve his problem because he's going to go home and one thing's going to lead to another and then he'll be with his wife and then the baby looks a little bit like the king, but whatever. You're like, not David's problem, even though it's going to be Bathsheba's problem for the rest of her life, this secret that she'll have to keep. But Uriah, he didn't count on Uriah's being honorable I can't go home. I'm still on duty. And when you were on duty in the Israeli army back then, you wouldn't give yourself to the comforts of home, including marital relations that made you ritually unclean. And then you can't go back to battle. So he's like, I'm not doing it. I'm staying here. I'm on duty. I'm not going home. And so now he has a bigger problem. Now, plan C, let me throw him a party. We'll pass around the wine. Maybe it'll lower his inhibitions a little bit and he'll give in to temptations and problem solved, but he still won't go home. And so now he has an even bigger problem on his hands. Now listen, at any moment in this story, all, I mean, at any moment, David could have confessed. Uriah, I'm so glad you're here. Listen, I know we're friends. I know I'm the king. I know you're fighting for me. You're defending me. I made a terrible mistake and I need you to know about it. I'm gonna tell you right now. But he refuses. Rather than confess, he continues to try to conceal. And I don't know, I don't know what, what you brought into this room, but I have the sense that there are some of you right now who are on the verge of making an impossibly foolish decision. There, is, there has been temptation that's been given into, and you are on the brink of giving yourself over to something that you will never come back from. And I am just begging you to learn from David right now. So plan D, which I'll summarize, this happens in verses 14 to 27. He's gonna send Uriah back to the battle with his own death sentence in hand. 
He sends a message to Joab. Hey, listen, I got a battle plan. Here's what I want you to do. You're going to come up to the front. You're going to uh, basically storm their territory. But then you guys are going to retreat, and Uriah is going to be there by himself at the front. And, um, and we'll just see what happens with this. And of course, Joab knows David. David's a, a warrior. He's a good one. So this plan is dumb. And Joab knows it's a dumb plan. He's like, this is not going to go well. And David's going to be really mad when a lot of other people die here. And guess what happens? The plan is dumb and a lot of other people die. And so he sends word back to David and he's just waiting. Hey, when the king gets mad, just, just be ready, okay? And, and the messenger tells David the whole story. These other men died. The battle plan went sideways, um, but Uriah is also dead. And David's response is basically, eh, cost to do in battle. Don't worry about it. Let's move on, which is highly uncharacteristic of a king who loves his soldiers, right? And so what happens is, I, I don't know if you've noticed this in the text so far. Do you see that Uriah is honorable like David was. And, and how much like Saul, David has become. And so Uriah is killed, Bathsheba grieves, and then David marries her. How noble of him. I'll raise, I'll raise this child as my own. But, but the text tells us, look at verse 27. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the first mention of God in this story so far. David has not to, up to this point consulted the Lord, prayed to the Lord, asked, worshiped, done anything. But this thing displeased the Lord. Okay, so here's my question. How did David get here? This is, the, this is the man after God's own heart. This is the same David who wrote Psalm 40. And uh, in Psalm 40, this is what he says. Uh, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. This is the same guy who wrote that, who just broke half the Ten Commandments in one fell swoop. How did he get here? Here's what this tells me. If David, Psalm 40, David, man after God's own heart, David, if he is capable of this heinous, wicked act, then so am I, and so are you. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? That even the best of us, even the most outwardly righteous of us, even those of us who are Christians and followers of Jesus, this can happen to us. And good people do terrible things all the time. And when those things happen, it's not that those people are crazy. I mean, they might be. You know what it is more? They're sinners. Because the Bible describes sin as a condition that is within us, not just something that's outside of us. 
And so when we see people who are noble and righteous and upright, when we see people who we trust and believe in, who fall in ways like this, it shouldn't erode our faith. I see so often people, well, this person claims to be a Christian, they fell, so Christianity must be wrong. Or, or, and I'm like, no, they're sinners. This shouldn't shock us, this shouldn't surprise us, this shouldn't erode our faith, this should actually drive us further to our faith because it's proof that we can't save ourselves. We need one who is not like us to rescue us. Amen? Now, some of you think, well, I, I would never do that. It's not possible. I could never fall in those ways. And I'm telling you right now, you're the most susceptible. Why? Because that seed of pride is in there. It's in all of us, but you're showing it, right? The seeds are there for all of us. The problem is we tend, even as followers of Jesus, we tend to believe that people are basically good. And so when bad things happen, it must be because of outside issues and sources and causes that made them do these things. No, no sin, the seeds of the most heinous wicked sins are in every single human heart. And given the right conditions, they will wreak havoc. And it happens all the time which is why we are warned in the book of James. Listen to this verse, James chapter one. I thought I marked my page. Here we go. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then when desire, then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So he's using gestational language, but we could use agricultural language just the same. The seeds are there. And you, you, you plant them deep enough and you water them and you tend that garden. Guess what's gonna happen? The fruit is going to be death. It's a fruit of failure. Okay, so, so what fruit is growing in your life right now? What, what are you, what's, what's coming to the surface? What conditions are you providing for those seeds of sin that are, that are in your heart? Are, are you tending that garden or are you stamping out the, those wicked things that, that have um, the potential to sprout up in your life? What fruit is your life bearing? Okay, you guys still with me? Are you encouraged yet? <laughs> Don't worry. Last thing I want you to see here, flip over to chapter 12. I'm calling this, I know it's silly, but I'm calling it a harvest of hope. I had to keep going with the agricultural language, okay? We have the seeds of sin, the fruit of failure, and a harvest of hope. Verse 1 of chapter 12, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. So David's been sending, 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 sending. Now the Lord sends. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich men had very many flocks and herds, about eight of them, you know, and some side sheep also. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew with him and his children and used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and line his arms. 
and was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's land, prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now listen to this. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I could add to it much. I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? We'll just stop there for a minute. Time has passed. It seems to have worked. This little manipulation, this power play has worked. Um, but in the immortal words of the prophet Johnny Cash, you can run on for a long time. You can run on for a long time. But sooner or later, God will cut you down. And it's his mercy to do so. Now he sends Nathan, and he's got a brilliant strategy here because nobody gives themselves over to sin without all kinds of rationalizations, right? Without all kinds of self-deception. Here's why this is a good idea. When everyone is telling you this is not a good idea, okay? And so Nathan doesn't come in hot. Nathan doesn't come in bursting the doors down with accusation. You are the man, right? He doesn't do that because what, what would happen? David's defenses would rise. Nathan's aim is not condemnation, it's conviction. Because after all, it's the kindness, not the hostility of God, which leads us to repentance, isn't it? And so he, he comes in. I got a problem that only you, king, who's also in this culture, judge and jury and executioner, only you can solve this problem. And he comes with a parable about David, but David doesn't quite get it. There's a rich man and a poor man. You know, we just read the story. Uh, by the way, we all need Nathans in our lives, and we all need to be like Nathans, Nathan, who will tell the truth, but with a lot of grace, like Jesus. And so... He comes in, uh, Nathan, and, and, and he's telling this parable, and he's laying it on pretty thick, right? Like, oh, the, he had just had this one little ewe lamb, and it was like a family member, and they laid it in his lap and ate at his table and all this stuff, and you're like, that's a little odd. Um, I know you cat people totally get it, but the rest of us, <laughs> week number two, okay. But he's, he rouses David's overzealous sense of justice because how many of you know that when you've got a secret, when people mention things similar to that secret, it rises something up in you? Some insecurity, some, some, uh, some hidden guilt perhaps, okay? And so David is overzealous here. And when he hears about this issue, he says, this man should pay four times restitution, which is God's law, okay, there's a fourfold judgment, but then he says, and he deserves to die, which is not God's law. 
in an instance such as this. David's going, does this guy think he can get away with injustice in my kingdom? Who is this bozo? And Nathan has to say, you're looking at him. You're the bozo. It's you. And in an instant, he's cut to the heart. And Nathan has to say God's words to him. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? The warnings of God in his, in his word from his prophets. Like you've just turned away from everything that God has been trying to say to you. And he explains to him the ramifications. He explains to him, number one, here's what you did because God revealed it to him. And then number two, here's the ramifications of your sin. And then in verse 13, if you look at verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Now, when Saul would confess, he would say, I have sinned, but he never said, I have sinned against the Lord. David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I'm pretty sure Bathsheba and Uriah would have a case to make here, but he is not deflecting. He's not blame shifting. He's owning his failure. And he's not, by the way, denying that he has sinned against others. We're going to look at that more next week. But ultimately, every sin is first and foremost a sin against God himself. And so Nathan brings him the, these words of hope. The Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. That really bothers some people. That's it. He just says, I'm sorry, I sinned. And he's forgiven and he moves on. And Uriah's dead and Bathsheba's raising this kid that was born of abuse. Like, that's all? And it's ironic because a lot of people have criticisms towards the God of the Old Testament as being too judgmental. And then we read a story like this and we go, he's not judgmental enough. It's like, which way do you want it? You know? Now you have to understand, there is a, a fourfold judgment coming to David's house. The sword shall not depart from his house. And what's going to happen is uh, the child that Bathsheba delivers is going to die. And then um, Amnon, his first son, is going to abuse his half-sister, who's one of David's daughters. And then her brother, Absalom, is going to kill Amnon. Then Absalom's going to be a fugitive. Then he's going to come back. Then he's going to try to take the kingdom. Then he's going to get killed. And then later on, another son, who many people call Adonijah or... Um, Adonijah, he tries to take the throne from Solomon and he ends up dying too. So four of David's children end up dead because of this sin. There's a fourfold judgment coming to David's household, but God is also quick to show mercy. And listen, confession and exposure being found out are both God's mercy, but the consequences are a little different. David actually doesn't confess here. He's busted. He's exposed, and he has no choice but to agree with what's been exposed. But confession is different. But, but anyway, God shows mercy to him, and, and mercy, mercy bothers some people. When we see people in the world, whether they're church leaders or political leaders or just our neighbor, right, or, or somebody who sins in ways similar to this, and, and then there's mercy, we're like, I can't stand it until we're the one who needs mercy, until you find yourself in a position where the only thing you've got to cling to is the mercy of God. 
And if you know that you need mercy, there's hope for you. Here's what I need to explain to you. When, when Nathan says to, the, to David here, the Lord has put away your sin, he doesn't mean it doesn't matter to God. That word put away means to transfer. Actually, another translation of this word is passed over. You will not die. Your sin has been passed over. And you think back to the Exodus and the sin of God's people was not put away, but it was put onto another so that they could receive atonement. All of our choices have consequences. David's choices deserve judgment and punishment and death. But the son of David, Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was tempted in every single way that you and I are tempted. He knows what it's like to be you. He knows the temptations that you struggle with. And yet Jesus never gave in. He never failed. He never sinned. Why? Because you can't. He succeeded where you fail. He succeeded where David failed. Like David up to this point is like the best guy we got. And he's a total train wreck. He's murdering people. I don't know if you've ever, there's an episode of The Simpsons a long, long time ago. Homer read the Bible for himself. And he finished and he went, um, everyone in here is a total mess except for that one guy. And it's like, that's the most brilliant statement of biblical theology I've heard in a long time, you know? Because Jesus was tempted in every way that we were tempted, and yet he did not give in to sin. Jesus was sent to the front lines with a death sentence that you and I signed. And he went willingly. And on the cross... Jesus, the judge of all the earth, dies condemned so that David and Davids like us can experience mercy and have life. And if that's not the best news you have ever heard in your entire life, I don't know what is. We sing it this way sometimes. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. And so there, there is brokenness in, in the clay vessels of every single one of our lives. But in Christ, if you have surrendered to Christ, if you have received with the empty hands of faith the finished work of Jesus Christ for you, in Christ, you are not only broken, you are beloved. And you are free from sin's condemnation. Romans says there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, which means there must only be the opposite of condemnation, which is grace and encouragement and kindness and mercy towards you. And God is, in all of our stories, mending together the broken pieces of our lives with the gold of the gospel. 
And those cracks are just part of our story. They're not things to be hidden or covered over. They're not things any longer to feel shame for. But if we have confessed them and received the mercy of God, then they are a beautiful part of this intricate life that is this clay vessel that is called my soul, my story. But listen, if, if, you, if you are free from sin's condemnation, please flee sin's coercion. Run from it and crush those seeds of sin before they sprout up in your life. Confess sin to God and to one another rather than conceal it. Confess it. Confession is actually a beautiful and joyous thing that we get to do. You know that? Because when we confess our sins, we are confessing them to the only one who can actually forgive us of them. What a beautiful thing. So confess, don't conceal, and run to mercy. Don't run from God's mercy, run to it. So with that, I have four questions. We're gonna pop up on the screen here really quickly. Um, you can take a picture of the screen once they're all up or you can write them down as they come. But I just want you to take these with you uh, wherever you're headed next and um, maybe contemplate them um, before we're together again next week. First question is this. I've sort of asked you some of these already, but I'll ask you again. Where might seeds of sin be present in my heart? Where might the seeds of sin be present in my heart? What, what, what choices am I making that are sort of accruing, that are not God-honoring, but I'm sort of just playing them off and not taking them seriously? What do I not think is a big deal that's actually a pretty big deal? You know, it started with David's laziness and it led to a look and it led to lingering and then it led to sinful actions. Just a multitude of small, seemingly insignificant choices that multiplied. Where might seeds of sin be present in my heart? Secondly, what kind of fruit is my life bearing right now? Now, some of you, it might be not great fruit and it's not your fault. Some of you, the, the branches might be pretty barren it's a fallow season and it's, it's not your fault, but others of us know that the fruit that we're bearing is the product of the sin that we've sowed into it. A tree is known by its fruit. And so if you find that there's some foul fruit on the tree of your life, that's an indication that you might need to confess and repent of some things. I don't know what they are, only you do. We'll talk more about confession and repentance next week. So I know it'll be a full house for that one. Um, Third, how can receiving the mercy of Jesus bring hope and healing to my place as a failure? Look, we all have failure in our stories. There's not a single one of us in this room who doesn't have sexual failure as part of our story in some way, shape, or form. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. So how can receiving the mercy of Jesus bring hope and healing to all those places of failure in my life? That's what we want, right? Hope, healing, strength in our weakness. It all comes from him and it only comes from him. And then last, what's one step that God might be calling me to take today towards a faithful and fruitful life? For some of you, it might be finally crossing that threshold from lack of faith into faith, from death into life, from sin into repentance, right? Into the kingdom of God. For others of you, it might, it might mean actually confessing something. 
and, and being willing to confess rather than be found out, even though there will be consequence. For some of you, it might be picking up the phone and, and forgiving someone who's hurt you, right? Um, extending mercy because you've received mercy. I don't know what it is for you. For some of you, it might just be making yourself known in church, like you're back in church for the first time in a long time, and it feels nerve-wracking and hard, and you're anxious, but God's saying, hey, just make yourself known. Just be part of this family. We're all a bunch of Davids, right, who are taken one step at a time in faith by the mercy of God. Won't you join us? So I'm going to leave these questions up on the screen. You can take a picture of it, write them down. Um, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move into our time of response. Um, if you weren't here last week, we're, we're for the summer, um, going back to sort of a self-serve version of communion. So uh, if you are not a Christian, I would say, please just stay seated during this time. This isn't for you. Uh, but if you are a Christian and you want to partake, you don't have to. This is not required. This is offered as a means of grace, as, as a, a tangible representation of the mercy of Jesus. Um, you can come when you're ready, uh, actually, when your row goes. Um, we'll start in the back rows. Uh, and, and work our way forward. But um, you're going to come down the aisle. You're going to take a piece of the bread, which is all gluten-free wafers, by the way. You're going to dip into the juice or the wine, whichever your conscience allows. And you are remembering the mercy of Jesus in this moment, that he who knew no sin became sin for you. He took all of your sin and your guilt and your shame on himself, and he bore the wrath of God in your place on the cross so that you could receive mercy and forgiveness and life and hope. And so you come in repentance, but you come in joy you get to repent. You get to confess. You get relationship with God. And he doesn't look at you in your sin and condemn you. He looks at you in your sin, and because of Jesus, he forgives you. So you come and you dip into the juice or the wine, and then you make your way back up the side aisles there. Um, you can give. There's offering boxes there in the back. If you're a regular, if you're new and want to drop your Connect card in those boxes, you can do that as well. And as you make your way back to your seats, uh, the band's going to come back up. We're going to sing a few more songs, uh, and then we're going to have Larry up here. We're going to pray over him as we commission him into retirement, and then I'll send you on your way. Let's pray, and then we'll move into our time of response. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you for your mercies, which are new every single morning. Lord, some of us came in this room just feeling like complete and total failures um, because in many ways we are. But you have mercy on us and you see us in Christ as spotless and blameless and above reproach, as beloved sons and daughters because of Jesus. And so help us to live into that identity. Help us to believe that that's really true for us to come to these tables with joy, to come to these tables in repentance and to come to these tables with confidence that we belong to you. And as we respond in singing, I pray that we would sing loudly because we believe the truths that are being proclaimed in these songs, and that this room would just swell with, with volume as we are filled with the joy of your presence. So be with us now as we respond. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. Let's be still and silent for a minute. When I get up, the tables will be open so back rows can go as soon as uh, I get up. <laughs>